0: Well, it's sometimes that faith comes in surprising places uh, that are not culturally anticipated. Mm. So the idea that a Gentile would be more responsive than a Jew, surprise. The idea that a woman might be more sensitive to the leading of God than a man, a surprise. Mm. So there's that element. I mean, even within that infancy material, you not only have Zechariah and Mary, but later on you have uh, Simeon and Hannah. Uh, and so you've got the raising of the widow of, uh, the widow of Nain's son, and then the next chapter, you've got the raising of Jairus's daughter. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, yeah, everything flips, but, but, but between the two of them, you get both. You get a, a mirror miracle mm-hmm. in Acts 13 and Acts 14, Sabbath miracles. One involves a man, the other involves a woman. So it's it's literally scattered throughout the gospel. It's very, very consistent in how it happens. And it's a way of saying the gospel is intended for everybody.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry and biblical studies and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. Today I sat down with Dr. Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. Now, I had known of Dr. Bach's work early on in my studies in grad school, but we first had the opportunity to interact in late 2019. He had edited a book I needed for my dissertation, but the publication date was very near when I needed to turn in my completed dissertation. I emailed him, explained my situation, mentioned that I had already purchased the book, and I asked him if he had a PDF of the final proofs, just something kind of something kind of rough where I could get some page numbers so I could use it for my dissertation. By lunchtime, he had responded to my email, asked me for my address, and by the next day, he let me know that there was a hard copy of the book in the mail, on my way. He went above and beyond in getting me the research I needed for my dissertation, and that absolutely floored me. Dr. Bach, in today's episode, brings a similar generosity and helpfulness to our understanding of the Gospel of Luke. The orphan gospel, as he likes to call it, is so full of powerful themes in its presentation of Jesus. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Bach, and I hope you will too also. If you enjoy this episode and think others may benefit from it, could I encourage you to like it and share it on your preferred social media platforms? If you haven't already, would you consider subscribing to Faith in the Fold so you don't miss out on any future episodes? And as always, thank you so much for tuning in today. Well, Dr. Bonk, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, sir. I really appreciate you being able to take out some time to to talk with us about the Gospel of Luke. And uh, some of the things that we might find in there. Uh, and so, let me uh, let me welcome you, sir. Glad you could join us today.
0: Oh, I'm glad to be with you, Kevin. And uh, talking about Luke is always a joy, as far as I'm concerned. I refer to it as the orphaned gospel. So it's uh, so it's a, it, it's it's uh, anytime Luke can get any publicity, you know. Matthew and John were always well regarded. They were tied to the apostles. And then you had Mark that came along and it was regarded as the first gospel written. So Luke's been out there waving at everybody ever since. And, and so, uh, so anytime we can talk about the gospel, even though, it's the, even though Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other writer, it, it's um, the fullest of the gospels in terms of the range of things that it covers. Um, m- about half of the parables that we have are unique to Luke. Um, we cover more ethical teaching of Jesus and Luke than any other gospel. So it's it's an orphan, but it's an important orphan.
1: Uh, for, for those of you who are kind enough to, to tune in with us, uh, you have heard it right here. Uh, Dr. Darrell Bach is making his case that the gospel of Luke is worth your time and
0: energy. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: and um, you have uh, you currently teach at uh, Dallas Theological uh, Seminary. Is that correct?
0: That's correct. Yes.
1: Okay. Uh, let me ask. How long have you been teaching? Uh, where all? I'm in my 40th years?
0: year here at Dallas wow. Seminary. All right.
1: 40 years. That is wonderful. Yeah. So several
0: of your listeners were going. I was a thought in the mind of God. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's a very very true yeah i um i turned uh, i turned 36 this year uh, later on October. Well, so i was already know. in the
0: classroom four years that's right you yeah born. you yeah.
1: you had probably already walked through a, a whole group of undergraduates
0: uh, that's before. exactly i get I, you know you know you're old when you start getting this the uh children of your former students
1: <laughs> yep i've got a youth minister back home who um yeah, who has uh, who's seen his uh, seen the kids of his uh, of his uh, folks um, folks uh, folks that he had when he first started come and go? So yeah, I can understand. Well, uh, can you tell us a little bit uh, what got you interested in the Gospel of Luke? You 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 gave an eloquent apologia for it uh, earlier, uh, but. Like you mentioned, Luke maybe uh, not, doesn't, get a, doesn't get a bad rap, but just maybe kind of uh, gets a short straw these days. What got you interested in studying the gospel of Luke before we dig into some of the more technical? One things? day I was
0: sitting in church, while I was in seminary, and I thought, what books of the Bible do I know the least about? And uh, so Luke's orphan sh- uh, status came through. Uh, I know very little about Luke, and I know very little about Acts. And, and so I, I made a pledge then that I would learn more about those books. And, uh, and I've been in Luke and Acts ever since. <laughs> so um, the lesson is be careful about what you think about during the Sunday sermon. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, that, uh, that makes perfect sense. Um, when we were arranging this interview, uh, yeah, for the sake of uh, the audience, when we we're arranging this interview, I had originally pitched you a different gospel and yep. you, were, you were kind enough to say that you would be willing to do that, but uh that wasn't exactly your forte. And mm-hmm. then I mentioned, well, what about Luke? And your response was, I've been studying Luke for the last 40 years. And I replied back, sounds like a winner to me. <laughs> 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 and so here yeah. we
0: are. Yeah. I mean, I can do John. I actually I can do any, I, I can do any of the gospels, but right. uh I like to tell people the synoptic gospels tell the story of Jesus from the earth up. John tells the story from heaven down. Mm -hmm. The difference being that you watch it dawn on people who Jesus is in the synoptic gospels and the church actually wrestles with that way of telling the story. Mm -hmm. We love John because John tells you in the very first verse what's going on. You know, in the beginning was the word and the word was his God and the word was God. This is CNN Mm -hmm. and, you know, from the very first verse, where John is taking you. There's no yeah. mystery. And we love a gospel that does all our heavy lifting for us. The problem is that everyone who comes to Jesus has to come to Jesus through the synoptic road. No one is born understanding that Jesus is the second person of the ontological trinity and that he is divine. They have to have it kind of displayed for them. And the, go- the synoptic gospels tell that story in a way that connects with where the listener starts, if I can say it that yeah. way. Yeah, and so I think the church needs to relearn how to how to hear that story and how to tell that story. Yeah,
1: the um, I think the hot take here is that the Gospel of John needs to stop doing our heavy lifting for us.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't mind. I don't. I, you know, I don't mind every now and again getting relief. You know, and running to John, but yeah. uh, if we actually understand how the Synoptics do it, then John actually makes more sense as well.
1: Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Well, talk to us about the Gospel of Luke. Um, we come to it. It's, uh, it's in this collection uh, known as the Gospels. Uh, h- help us understand what is the literary type? What is the genre of the Gospel of Luke? And what kind of things does it tell us about how we should read it?
0: Well, uh, first of all, it's an, ancient, it's an ancient biography, which means that it's focused on the person and work of, of the person who's being highlighted, what they said, what they did that kind of thing. It's not a modern biography. Modern biography would get into the background of someone, their parentage, you know, um, uh, even a description probably of what they looked like. We have no idea what Jesus looked like. Um, so, um, you know, so it's, it's different in that regard, but it's an ancient biography. It's also part of a two volume work. So, you know, we think Hollywood invented the sequel. I have a secret for them. The Bible came first and, uh, and, and Luke is, is is the originator of that. So there was Luke Acts. So Luke was always intended as a gospel to lead into the story of the early church, and tell the second half of the story, if you will. So that makes it a little bit different. Um, Luke and Acts are slightly different in genre. The um, the Luke is a is a biography, as I said, an ancient biography. Um, Acts is more a um, uh, I'm going to use a sociological term: a legitimization document. It's explaining the origins of a community, and legitimizing the nature of those origins. Okay. Um, so, you know, in Acts, you're dealing with something that looks like it's new on the block. And in the ancient world, a religion that was new was not a good thing. It's yes. not like our modern world, you right. know, where I want to have Microsoft Word. 2023 and 2021 just because I like to be ahead yeah and so um and so,
1: religious freedom did not exist in the ancient world there was no uh, exactly and you had
0: to and and so religion in order to have cultural respect had to have roots it had you know had to be time tested if you will so Luke is writing to explain that what looks to be new on the block was actually part of a divine plan that God's been working on for centuries so it looks new but it's actually old And the idea of bringing Jew and Gentile together into a community, which was revolutionary in that time, um, uh, is also part of that plan. So something that looks like it's socially disruptive is actually part of the divine intention. So that's Acts. and, And Luke lays all the groundwork for being able to tell that story. Yeah.
1: Now I didn't prompt you ahead of this. Uh, prompt you of this ahead of time, and so uh, yeah, apologize for springing this on you. Uh, can you talk to us briefly just about this character known as Theophilus here at the beginning of Luke? Um, who is that, uh, or kind of what, what's your thinking on that? Is, is this something that Luke has written in dedication? like to dedicate to him or is Theophilus the guy that's bankrolling Luke's efforts? H- help us understand Theophilus. Could be any or
0: all of the above. I do think he's a definite person. Some people think it's a cipher for simply a God lover, which is what the name means. <laughs> yeah. something kind of like, like a metaphor. Unlikely, right? The most excellent idea has someone specific in mind. He's obviously someone of social status. Mm-hmm. I suspect he is a Gentile or a God fear who's come to the faith <laughs> He's coming to this community of mixed diversity, of Jew and Gentile together. It's originally a Jewish movement, and the Jews are pushing back. Mm-hmm. It's a Jew-Gentile movement, which makes some Gentiles push back, and he's going, have I made the right decision? i in the right place. So Luke writes to give him assurance of the things that he's been taught. Yes, you're in the right place. This is part of the divine plan. The pressure that you see is not a function of divine judgment. It's actually a function of what uh, uh, of modeling the way that Christ laid out before us, which is there's suffering alongside exaltation, and you walk the same path on the same road, and that's part of the divine design. So yes, uh, stay put. You're where you belong. Be assured. Move ahead and help those Jews and Gentiles get along. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I had not uh, I had not considered before uh, thinking about uh, Theophilus as someone within this in this category that uh, folks in New Testament studies call God-fearers. We see some folks in the book of Acts described as God-fearers. Is that right?
0: Yeah, and the portrait is always very positive. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I'm, I'm deeply suspicious. You know, if he's a God-fearer, he's a Gentile who's had contact with Judaism and has a respect for Judaism. And the fact that Christianity is getting pushed back from Judaism with him perhaps having made that previous move, may explain the pressure he feels. Whoever he's writing to knows the Old Testament. I mean, yeah. Luke is chock full of references and allusions to the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes me suspicious that a person to appreciate those connections needs to have some deep connection to Judaism and to its, and to its text. Yeah. And so that's, that's what makes me suspicious that he, if he isn't if he isn't a Gentile who's absorbed his knowledge of the Old Testament because he's been a Christian, um, it's because of an exposure to Judaism and the fact that he's uh, uncomfortable, perhaps, and needs assurance, makes me suspect he's not a long-term Christian, which means that the Old Testament background would come from somewhere else.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And and, and speaking of uh, how how deeply steeped the Gospel of Luke is in the Old Testament, um, uh, let me ask this question is, I've heard that the first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke almost feel as if it might be that Luke is kind of mirroring the kind of language that he might have seen Yeah, in the, Old the
0: style of the Greek in the infancy material is very septuagintal, okay, yeah. mm-hmm. septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and so um, you read that, and you go, I could be reading, I could be reading the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Yeah, so um, yeah, it's 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 very, and there's a lot. Of, Luke Luke has um, the language of scripture. Uh, in the dialogue of the characters, it's different than Matthew. Matthew marks out his Old Testament site. This happened in order that it might be fulfilled. Okay, but Luke, you get the language and the allusions to the Old Testament in the very language of the characters who speak, especially in those first two chapters, which are like an overture to the two volumes. Um, they're like that piece in the beginning of a symphony, which overviews mm-hmm. the themes that are coming later and more fullness. Yeah. And so, uh, and the Old Testament is literally chock full in those first two chapters.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think that 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 really sets Luke apart as uh, a, as one of the most skilled authors of uh, of the New Testament. It's difficult to tell if you uh, if you're not able to read Greek, but if you can get a, a more uh, a more formal translation, something that feels a little more wooden, like a like an ESV or like a New American Standard or something along those lines, and you read those first four verses in the Gospel of Luke. You know, it, it, nowhere else in the New Testament, right? Are, are your New Testament translators using words like "in as much"? You know, in as much as they yeah. have undertaken to compile a narrative, or, you know, something along those lines. Luke is really really make letting us know that he is writing with a pretty high quality. Uh, how would he stack up, say, compared to somebody like Paul?
0: Well, uh, the, the, general re, the general sense is, is that the two books with the most sophisticated Greek in the New Testament are, um, are Luke and Acts and the book of Hebrews. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everyone falls in terms of level of difficulty and kind of, you know, they didn't have this in the ancient world, but grade level, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> grade, level, grade level English grade level Greek mm-hmm. um, would fall below that so um, this is a high this, I wouldn't be the highest literary Greek but it certainly is a high literary Greek and Luke comes across as a very literate writer yeah um, uh, someone who's aware of historiography that kind of thing
1: so since Luke is writing um, writing a biographical account he is writing to tell us something about Jesus um, what does this uh, what does this tell us for how ancient audiences would have originally heard Luke and how we should read Luke our, our, He's not writing a novel. He's writing a biography. So what what does that tell us about?
0: Well, he is giving us a narrative account. And when he says that he's writing consecutive order, we default to chronology in a chronological order. Mm -hmm. That's not so much the orderliness that he has. I mean, there is a chronological sequence what he's doing, but not everything's done in chronological order. Sometimes there are things grouped by topic rather than order. They're there are controversies placed on top of one another and right next to one another to survey. This is the kind of thing that got Jesus into trouble as opposed to giving you, this is the actual sequence in which it happened, that kind of thing. So there's some of that going on. Um, The order that actually makes the most sense for Luke and Luke acts is geographical, okay? okay. We start off in Jerusalem. We have a ministry in Galilee. We We travel from Galilee to Jerusalem. We experience the cross Acts begins in Jerusalem, we move to Samaria, and then we move to the ends of the earth, okay, with the missionary journeys, and eventually the center of the conversation moves from Jerusalem at the start of Acts, and of course where it's been in Israel in the Gospels, to Rome. And the goal is to get the Gospel to Rome, which shows the move from a a strictly Jewish-focused initial message of Jesus to one that's covering the whole world.
1: Yeah, and so with with Luke here, he is not concerned because writers of biography in Luke's time did not have to be as concerned with strict chronological order of, okay, event A follows, you know, precedes B, precedes C, etc. They had some freedom to move some things around, like I said, topically. But then obviously when you get to, you know, say the last week of Jesus's earthly ministry, right, those things. Yeah, those
0: things are tightly chronological. I, you know, I often have people visit my office, usually like people who sit down and say, I want to write a singular story of Jesus and put all the Gospels together. And basically what I say to them is good luck. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I said, yeah. you'll get in the middle, you'll get in the middle of Jesus' ministry in the way in which. Different writers have put the same event in a different context because of the different ways in which they're doing things and the different concerns that they have mm-hmm. and figuring out what that order is will give you my hairline so I try and spare them needing hair care and <laughs> uh, uh, and, uh, and and say you're better off with a different kind of project yeah. um, and, and the other back thing I like to say on the back side of that is we have four gospels for a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have four gospels to give us four angles on Jesus. When we level it all out, we risk losing what each gospel is giving us. I'd rather have Jesus in quadraphonic sound than in mono than in monotone. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so I think that's why we have four gospels.
1: Uh, that, that, uh, that's a nice analogy there. Jesus in stereo rather than Jesus in mono.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like
1: that. Well, talking about some of the major talking about the risk of losing some of these emphases that we might find in the individual gospels. Can you talk walk us through some of Luke's major emphases. Uh, you definitely mentioned the Old Testament and how he is uh, I think it's fair to say that G- that Luke is trying to show how Jesus is the fulfillment, right
0: Yeah, uh, let's call it proclamation from prophecy and pattern. So okay. he's making a proclamation about who Jesus is mm-hmm. in relationship to God's plan, another big theme for Luke is the uh, unfolding of God's promised plan. Uh, The the infancy narratives begin with numerous allusions to various covenants, commitments made to Abraham, uh, the fact that Jesus is in the line of David, which alludes to Davidic covenant commitments, Mm -hmm. the idea of the spirit coming, which is an allusion to the new covenant. So all that is very fully developed. It's implicit in the other Synoptic Gospels, but it's much more fully developed in Luke. The whole ethical element in Luke uh, is very, very important. He sets the tone very early on by talking about John the Baptist uh, preparing the people for the coming of the Lord. And that preparation not only involves turning Israel back to God in John the Baptist's mission, but turning the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the heart of the just. So reconciliation as a goal of the gospel is stated very early on as a part of this program and plan. And that reconciliation shows itself in the ethical commitments that the church makes. There's a lot more about money Mm -hmm. in Luke than anywhere else. So how you handle your possessions and what Jesus had to say about that. I've already talked about the extent of parabolic teaching that's emphasized in Luke and that's unique to Luke, particularly passages related to stewardship. Mm -hmm. Um, and the responsibilities that we have to God, the accountability that we have to God, because we're made in His image, and we were made and designed for relationship with Him. So uh, Luke has a lot of emphases. Uh, There's a juxtaposition of male and female in the book that you don't see in the other Gospels quite Mm -hmm. so much to make the point that that Jesus is reaching out to everyone. There's a concern for the marginalized. Mm -hmm. That is expressed in Luke that you see even in the synagogue speech that you get, with it, which is unique to Luke in terms of its content, mm-hmm. that highlights the fact that Jesus is ministering to the poor and to those yeah. on the marginalized side of society. So, I mean, the, the list is endless. I like to joke that um, conservatives like Matthew and liberals like Luke, okay, <laughs> and they're both in our Bible.
1: What does it say about me that uh, the Gospel of Matthew is my favorite gospel? Uh, don't go there. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll edit that out. <laughs> Let's dig into a couple of these emphases really quick. Uh, one that um, that I mentioned at the time of recording, I'm actually recording a couple of days after the, um, the episode that I'm going to do on the Book of Acts with uh, Craig Keener. It will, it will release a couple of weeks after this particular episode releases. Something that we mentioned that, that he particularly mentioned was in the, the opening chapters of Luke, the juxtaposition, the contrast between Zechariah and Mary. You mentioned this male-female juxtaposition. This feels like a good case in point. Could you talk to us a little bit about what is Luke trying to show by how he implicitly or maybe explicitly compares? Zechariah and his response to God's call versus Mary and her response to God's call?
0: Well, it's sometimes that faith comes in surprising places uh, that are not not culturally anticipated. Mm -hmm. So the idea that a Gentile would be more responsive than a Jew, surprise. The idea that a woman might be more sensitive to the leading of God than a man, a surprise. Mm -hmm. So there's that element. I mean, even within that infancy material, you not only have Zechariah and Mary, but later on you have uh, Simeon and Hannah, uh, and so you've got that you you've got uh, you've got the raising of the widow of uh, the widow of Nain's son, and then the next chapter you've got the raising of Jairus's daughter. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, everything flips, but 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 between the two of them you get both. You get a miracle, mirror a miracle, a mirror miracle. Mm-hmm. In Acts 13 and Acts 14, Sabbath miracles, one involves a man, the other involves a woman. So, um, so it's, it's literally scattered throughout the gospel. It's very, very consistent in how it happens. And it's a way of saying the gospel is intended for everybody, yeah. uh, that uh, no one is excluded. And in an era in which women were put in a secondary space and in some cases— there was debate about whether you should even teach a woman the Torah in Judaism. It's a very um, uh, obvious and transparent statement to be making. Yeah,
1: yeah, and it's um, I, I've I've taught on uh, kind of the the divine reversal. I think that's one way that I've heard it described before. Is that you know God is um, taking taking the proud and kind of leveling out the playing field with someone who, like Mary who would have you know, really the exact opposite end of the social social scale that's right and 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 of of course it's also
0: happening with the marginalized the same kind of thing is yeah the rich and the proud and the powerful you got to think of as being uh, drawn to and necessarily blessed to be in fact the rich have a very hard time in luke generally speaking there are a few examples in luke and acts of positive rich people but there's a lot of warning about what how riches can distract from god because they give us a sense they give us a false sense of control of the yeah. creation and of our environment and the way we respond to people we tend to respond to people as means to an end rather than on individual personal terms those are some of the things luke is warning about money the pursuit of money can do to us yeah yeah
1: Another emphasis that I wanted to see if you could dig into a little bit with us is Luke's uh, preoccupation might be kind of a negative way to put it, but Luke really is uh, really driving home the importance of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's role in uh, in bringing about this uh, this kingdom that Jesus is talking about. Can you talk to us a little bit about oh, how, man, I, what Luke uh, does with the Holy Spirit? Uh, yeah,
0: I mean, we could do a whole podcast just <laughs> on the theme. Uh, Luke is very, very clear, uh, clearer than any of the gospel writers, that the arrival of the Spirit to indwell believers is the sign of the new era. Mm -hmm. Okay, Uh, this comes up in a passage unique to Luke. Well, the passage isn't unique to Luke, but the framing of it is in which the crowd is considering whether John the Baptist is in Luke chapter 3. Uh, The crowd is considering whether John the Baptist might be the Christ or not. And John the Baptist replies with something that's in the other synoptic gospel. We just don't know the context of the remark from the other gospels that it's not me. I only baptize with water. In fact, I'm unworthy to uh, uh, to unstrap the strap of a sandal on the one who is to come, which, by the way, has a cultural background. Because in Judaism, a Jewish person was not supposed to become a slave, but if they did become a slave, one thing was viewed as too demeaning for a slave to perform one duty, and that was to, to unstrap the, the sandal of a master in order to wash their feet. Wow. And so John is saying, and John's a prophet. Okay, which is kind of high up on the religious ladder. Uh, Yeah. All right. I mean, he's up there. And if you had what Jesus said about John, no one greater born a woman up to that point. Right. Okay. Which puts him even higher up on the ladder. Mm -hmm. Yet the difference between him and the one to come is so great that he's not able to perform the most demeaning task of a slave for this person. He's not worthy to do that. I mean, that's a tremendous statement of humility, a to statement about the difference between the prophets and the one to come, all kinds of things. But the way you're going to know that that person has come, I baptize with water, the one who comes after me is going to baptize with spirit and fire. Yeah. and so the so the sign the way you can know that the christ is here the way you can know that the new era is here is the one who brings the spirit of god and then of course luke is focused on the coming of the spirit in his two volumes in the end of chapter 24 he tells them to sit and wait in jerusalem until they're clothed with the spirit in chapter two we have the coming of the spirit uh, and the pen and then when gentiles get the spirit The conditions under which they get the Spirit is the basis for making the decision about whether a Gentile has to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Mm -hmm. So all that is tied neatly together in a nice little knot. And by the time you're all done, you realize... The Spirit of God is the evidence of God's presence. And then, of course, if you think about this from just an Old Testament term, I tell people, sometimes read your New Testament, you got to put your yarmulke up on your head. Let's dig into the
1: Old Testament background of this a little bit. Yeah, Yeah, I mean,
0: what what you're saying, one, you're dealing with the New Covenant. You're dealing with the picture of the New Covenant. I'm going to put my law on your heart. Ezekiel uh, describes it as a washing in which he puts the Spirit within us. Okay. So this is the indwelling work of the spirit. And by the way, when I talk about this, I'm not talking about charismatic gifts. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about a core enablement that identifies and marks us out as a child of God. And, and so, so the presence of tongues at certain points along the way are indications that this has happened with very specific new groups, Mm -hmm. which is what you get in Acts. Um, But the presence of the Spirit is something that marks out all Christians, and that hadn't happened before because if it had happened before, the disciples wouldn't have to wait for it to happen in Acts 2. So that's another important observation. Yeah. So you've got the combination of the New Covenant. Another picture that you get that's very Old Testament is what you see happening with Cornelius in Acts. Sorry already talked so much about Acts, but the two volumes are very much connected.
1: Right. I and mean, this is not necessarily stuff that we hit with this particular angle in the episode that's uh, coming up with Keener. So, so think
0: about, think about the Jews watching what happens in Acts 10, mm-hmm. you know, and there are six of them. You normally need two witnesses. God wanted to be sure I'm going to bring three <laughs> pairs of two witnesses so that you get this. Yeah. And, uh, And they're they're amazed that the Gentiles have the Spirit of God. Well, they're amazed for a couple of reasons. One, the the, um, Spirit is the sign of the new era. And two, these Gentiles haven't gotten circumcised yet, and they got the Spirit. So so how'd that work? Again, put your yarmulke on, do your Jewish thinking. In the Old Testament, uh, from an Old Testament perspective, and particularly from a traditional Jewish perspective, Gentiles were seen as unclean people. Mm -hmm. Okay, if you're unclean, you cannot be in direct contact with God. If you're a good Jew, you have to have a washing or a sacrifice to render you clean before you can go into the temple. But if the spirit of God has indwelt Gentiles, that means they must be cleansed. Okay, so the Jewish observers get that. Okay, Peter definitely gets that. He explains it in Acts 11. He explains it again in Acts 15. What God had cleansed. You know, who is I to prevent prevent them from getting baptized? And so so that's the picture in the background of what we're dealing with. So there's very rich Old Testament, uh, pious spirituality language in what's going on. And the person who sees that sees what God has done. And then there's another beautiful thing that comes out of this. They're complaining about Peter, about what he has done. And basically he says, look, if you have a complaint and you want to take it to the complaints department, your complaint is not with me, okay? don't challenge the messenger, your, your complaint needs to go to the Father, and I want to see how that complaint turns out. <laughs> right,
1: yeah, yeah, and so the Gospel of Luke helps, uh, really anticipates this yes. kind of outpouring here in the book of Acts. Uh, exactly right. What, what are maybe, maybe a couple of things that we see in Luke that really point us toward what's about to happen in Acts?
0: Well, uh, 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 a great scene is the synagogue scene, okay? Jesus comes in, he comes in the synagogue, he preaches. Luke chapter 4? Luke chapter 4, okay? okay? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, you know, he's asked me to preach good news to the poor, etc., declare the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of jubilee and forgiveness, okay? After that, he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, and the crowd is going, hmm, that's some interesting messiology. Could that possibly be Jesus? Is that, po- could that, they contemplate that possibility, okay, but then there's step two in the scene. Step two in the scene is when Jesus says, you know, a prophet is without honor in his own country, and then he brings up Elijah and Elijah, okay, and he brings up uh, the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian, okay, two Gentiles, all right, okay, no blessings in Israel, but two Gentiles get blessed. Now, how do you think the crowd swallowed that message, okay, Hey, you're on my toes, German, man. <laughs> there's a German phrase. The German phrase is "nicht froh," which means not happy. Okay, <laughs> they were not happy yeah. that that uh, Jesus suggested that perhaps there'd be blessing extended to the Gentiles and that Jews might not get blessed. Or there's the story of the centurion in which he says, "I haven't seen such faith in Israel." That kind of thing. So there are all kinds of examples where where you know what there's the healing of the 10 lepers okay and one of them comes back he's a foreigner he's the only one who stops and thanks jesus Mm -hmm. so all these little hints along the way that there's spiritual sensitivity outside of israel that is does not exist in the majority of the nation itself which is all a tipping hand of why we get certain scenes in acts when paul shares with the jews and there's not a a resounding reaction, he says, I'm gonna to turn to the Gentiles.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And um, the Old Testament.
1: If if folks had been paying attention, the Old Testament, yeah, you know, presented this as as going to happen.
0: Yeah. And the words of that great theologian Chris Berman, back, 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 back in the book of Genesis, yeah. All right, Genesis twelve, the Abrahamic covenant, verse three. through your seed, the world's going to be blessed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The calling of Israel was to be a blessing for the world through the seed that was going to come through Abraham, and, and, and they were failing to do that. Article. In the in the Luke four text that we just talked about, there's an uh, there's an allusion to Isaiah fifty eight that's embedded in the Isaiah sixty one quote. Mm-hmm. That text is actually a rebuke of Israel for not being the people of God with the mission of God that God gave them, by not representing God well and reaching out to others. So Jesus is going to do what the nation has failed to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. And if, like you said earlier, if Theophilus, the the one to whom Luke is uh, dedicating these, or maybe perhaps also the one that is kind of bankrolling Luke's operations here. If Theophilus is a Gentile, but if he also fits religiously in this God-fearer category that um, that we've talked about, how how especially meaningful is it then
0: that because he's got a foot in both worlds? worlds. What's and and he's got a foot in both worlds, and the reconciliation that's being achieved is is being being achieved. If I can extend the metaphor, is being achieved with both feet. (laughs) Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It really has been. Yeah. Um, and Dr. Bach, as we kind of near the end of our uh, time together this afternoon, um, m- maybe we could get to get uh, somewhat personal for just a moment. What's, what's maybe one or two of your favorite pericopes, your favorite little stories or parables in Luke? And maybe would you mind telling us uh, why you find those especially meaningful for you?
0: Yeah, I actually hate this question because it makes me it makes me choose between a lot of passages that I like. OK, so there's uh, I, I tell people, I don't know if I have a number one. You know, I have I have a number one, a number two, a number three, a number four, a number five. And the list just keeps going. But but you ask, yeah, so I'll 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 humor your question. Uh, and, and and one of the passages that I really do love a lot is a passage. With a character who never says a word. It's the woman who anoints Jesus in Luke 7. Hmm. Uh, she never says a word. There are two very different interpretations about what she's done. There's the Pharisaic interpretation that says, if Jesus knew what sort of woman this was, you know, he wouldn't allow this to take place, is basically what he's saying. And he says it with a second-class condition, if Jesus were a prophet and he knew, of course, the suggestion is he's not a prophet because he's yeah. allowing us to take place. Uh, for,
1: for those who aren't aware, the um, mentioning particular kind of condition that, uh, that Dr. Bacchus just mentioned, that's, a, that's related to an issue in how the grammar of the Greek is situated in such a way... But there are can... three
0: types of if clauses. I'll mm-hmm. go ahead and work through it. Three types yep. of if clauses, if-then clauses. Depending on how they're written in Greek, if and let's let's assume for the sake of presentation this is so, then that's a first class condition. Mm-hmm. If and let's assume for the sake of presentation this is not the case, then that's a second class condition. And third, if and I'm not saying either way, then this is a second class condition. If Jesus were a prophet, but it's clear he's not, is yeah. really the point of that w- rendering because he's allowing this to take because the Pharisee has a theology that says God doesn't have anything to do with sinners. Yeah. Okay, Jesus comes along and says what better example, this person realizes they're a sinner, they realize that they're forgiven by God, what better example to have someone express their appreciation to me than someone who's appreciative of the grace of God, Mm -hmm. and so, so it's a completely 360 different read, or 180 different read, and viewed very differently, but there's a parable that's told in the midst of this, that's the key to this passage, and why I love it, and that is, There's a a story of two debtors. One has a a two-and-a-half-month debt, and the other has a a two-and-a-half-year debt Mm -hmm. that uh, they have accrued. Uh, They're both forgiven. And Jesus asks the Pharisee the question, which one would love more? And the Pharisee, to his credit, answers correctly, the one who's forgiven more. And then Jesus responds this way, the one who is forgiven much loves much. The one who is forgiven little loves little. And so what that sharing is showing is if you appreciate the depth of God's grace, then you will appreciate the depth of God's love. Mm-hmm. But if you think God only sort of forgave you, then your love's going to be shallow. Yeah. And that's what he's challenging the Pharisee with in that passage. And so I think it's a I think it's a wonderful passage that shows the depths of God's grace. And so it's right in the middle of what the gospel is all about. So that's one of the reasons why that's one of my favorite passages in yeah. Luke yeah and the woman says nothing the whole time it's all done on the base of what she so it's like walking into an art museum mm-hmm. okay and you look at this modern painting and one person walks up to it and says oh man that's profound the second person walks up and says my five-year-old could do that so you know so uh you know which which route are you going to take yeah yeah
1: i i, I had not uh... Not thought about that particular episode as one that would be a lot of people's favorites. But the way you put it, that really does make a lot of sense how we can, you know, especially when you're aware of kind of how many of the Pharisees who encountered Jesus m- must have viewed themselves as not necessarily in need of
0: the right. amount of someone did. Yeah. Yeah. The flip side of this is you've got to remember, I, I think this is fundamental to being a uh, a great commission Christian. And that is, you're never to forget where you came from and how you got to where you are. And it's by the grace of God, period. End of story. And if you think that somehow you've commended yourself to God and he just kind of helped you over the finish line, you're going to walk in your spiritual life one way. But if you realize that you really needed what it is that God provided because you fell well short, You're going to appreciate the grace of God and be grateful. If someone, the way I like to illustrate it is, if you had a debt on your house and you went to the bank and you couldn't pay your monthly payments and the banker is saying to you, when are you going to be able to do this? Say you lost your job. Or when are you going to be able to do this? I don't know. Depends when I get a job, et cetera. And, and, and the banker turns to you and says, well, if you don't know when you can pay us, we're going to have to do something about this. And you're contemplating living in a hotel or trying to figure out what the rest of your life's going to be like. And instead, he pulls out a checkbook and writes a check and says, here, your mortgage is paid in full. The house is yours. Go in peace. I say, you would tell your friends about that banker.
1: Yeah. So, <laughs> you know,
0: so, uh, that's the grace of God.
1: Very much so. Dr. Bach, as we, uh, as we come to the end of our time together this afternoon, is there any final lesson, any final bow you want to tie on this as we, uh, as we wrap up here?
0: Don't let Luke be an orphan. <laughs>
1: That's Give it. it. Fair Don't shake. let
0: Luke be an orphan. He's worth the study. He belongs in the family. He's in the canon for a reason. He actually occupies a very central place in the canon. He's 30% of the New Testament, Luke and Acts. Yeah. So, it's probably he's probably worth getting to know. He's actually written more of the New Testament than Paul, which surprises people. Mm-hmm. So uh, so you know, when the orphan gets his due, he will get his due.
1: Always caring for the marginalized, just like the Gospel of Luke.
0: Exactly right.
1: Dr. Bonk, thank you so much for your time, so I really appreciate it and uh, look forward maybe sometime there's another project we can uh, we can catch up on again sometime in the future.
0: Love to do it with you. Glad you're there in Corpus Christi where the beaches are fine.
1: That's right. Yes, sir. Take care and we'll see you next time.
0: All